When I think of beer, I am reminded of Frederick Schiller's famous Ode de Glock, The Bell, in which the poet describes the church bell as mankind's constant companion amid life's turbulent changes. The bell rings in the christening of a newborn, booms its ominous alert when disaster strikes, beckons a merry company to a wedding ceremony, and, finally, sounds a somber farewell when we are laid to rest. Beer is just such a constant companion, especially in Germany. There is no event in that country, grave or trivial, large or small, at which beer is not served. I wonder how much nonsense and how much profundity has been discussed through the ages over a glass of beer. Beer stimulates, beer affirms, beer consoles. German culture without beer is unthinkable. Beer is a natural companion of life in Germany. It is considered one of the supreme earthly pleasures and it is universally of high quality. It is not intended as a drug with which to get loaded, but as the proper default drink for any occasion. I have embraced that approach to beer. My motto, drink less, drink better, and always enjoy. That's what this book is all about. Have fun learning about the past and the present of German beer, and may the knowledge of its tradition deepen your reverence for the truly unique achievement it represents. Relax, Raise your glass, have a good brew, and a good read. Prost. Intro to Prost, the history of German beer by Horst Dornbusch. Beer, it is the drink of those who think and feel no fear nor fetter, who do not drink to senseless sink, but drink to think the better. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Prost. Prost. styles. I'm your host and beer aficionado, Lauren McCaffrey. And with me today is the head brewer from Mighty River Brewing Company in Windsor, Colorado, Gabe Sully. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have a beer. Very good. Excellent. Oh, okay. Drinking with Heinz Stefaner, Hefeweizen. It is pretty damn good. I'd say so. Yeah. It's a classic. Oh. So when I first talked to you and you brought up Hefeweizen's, sorry, I know it's Hefeweizen. Yes, we got it. But leave us alone. Okay? <laughs> We're trying to have a good time here. Why, why this beer? Uh, my dad told me to when I was a kid. <laughs> this is a, it's always been a favorite. Um, light body. Really interesting estuary flavors. I think it's a very unique style. And, you know, it's it's ancient. I mean, wheat as a grain in beer goes back to, like, ancient Samaria. So, yes. like, it's kind of yes. cool, historically speaking. Um, and it's just a fabulous style. But, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think, why this beer? Oh, specifically this one behind Oh, well, my boss told me to. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the best? It's, it's a classic. It's one of the original ones. Um, the Heinz Stefan School uh, was someone that they, you know, really made wheat beer their thing. 
and for a while that was where you could get um, one of the only sources, if not the only source, that you could get uh, the proper yeast for the style was from their exquisite yeast bank. Um, also, yeast bank, what a concept. <laughs> so I've actually kind of wondered about that because I know that after you the yeast procreates like 11 generations, then it starts to have some weird things happen. Yeah, yeah, it, it can mutate and stop being, you know, ex- like, so for instance, at Avery, they can only go six generations because of how high ABV they brew a lot of styles. Really? Yeah, so a lot of their beers, they they can repitch like six times, and after that, it's so mutated from the high alcohol, because alcohol, you know, despite yeast being able to tolerate it, it is still, you know, not necessarily its favorite environment to be, you know, floating around in. Um, and it co- and it does cause mutagenesis, and so you end up with, like, fucked up yeast. Yeah, but, uh... So I mean, if... I know if you get the ABV too high, the yeast all die, right? Yeah, well, depending on the strain and stuff, you can... There's some that are more tolerant of higher ABV, some that are less tolerant, um... But as far as like keeping a yeast bank, I mean, you have, you can have an original species, you know, on a slant and take a small, you know, because one cell can be propagated off into, you know, hectoliters of pro- of propagant to go into a fermenter, um, and then just, you know, if you can keep it on ice, you can usually be all right, and then you can also take that base culture and just propagate it and use, you know, not subject it to a full brewing cycle and actually cause issues oh, okay so it's it's really gonna mutate pretty much if you're just using it but if you're not using it if you're just taking cells from the initial culture it'll be okay i would generally say so um especially if the original culture is you know it's not actively you know budding a ton and creating a whole bunch of new generations it's you know chilled so it's sort of just you know in a state of stasis um, okay. You know, oh, yeah, right in the box. Hell yeah, Good buddy. Good boy. We're going to talk about the cat all through this. It'll be fine. Yeah. It'll be fine. So if you're ever confused as to what we're remarking on, it's the little black cat that sniffs and hisses. Yeah, Severian actually does like beer, by the way. Um, not this beer. He only likes tart peach kolsch. That's the winner, huh? Yeah. Yep. That's what he had as a kid. cats can't perceive sweetness. They're not supposed to be able to. Yeah, I mean, like, they're an obligate carnivore. It makes sense. But he likes it. Maybe he likes the sour. Yeah, I don't know. He's weird. Well, they all are. So, but... Oh, my God. So cute. Okay. All right. So, as we've alluded to, our beer today is Hefeweizen, which traces back to ancient times. And fanned the flames of a royal feud, blatantly flipped off the beer German purity laws, and financed a war. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, cheers. Cheers to all that drama. (laughs) Okay. Oh, no, it seems I've run out. I love that you had this growing up because I did not. Oh, really? Yeah, the only beer in our house was Fat Tire. Fort Collins classic. That's all my dad drank. Hmm. And then we would go, I don't know, to Coors Field, and I had Coors. And I was like, this is 
Coors. I've not had a lot of Coors in my life. I'm going to be nice to them because we're eventually going to discuss Coors. And their history is fascinating. And to be honest, it is a technological feat to brew that scale with, you know, so little to hide, you know, off flavors behind. I mean, props to them. That is, oh my God, it's an achievement. It really They is. all taste the same. It's, it's really hard to miracle. do. I understand that now. I didn't before. A lot of people don't. Yeah. I think there's there's uh, some due respect, which gets missed a lot. Um, but yeah, no, I grew up with all sorts of interesting beers. Um, my dad's always been a snob of everything he can be. And I was raised in that same frame of mind. But uh, growing up in Boulder, we'd spend a lot of time at like... Uh, brew pubs and stuff where they had some micro brews and things uh like southern sun and i love um, southern sun oh yeah and uh boulder beer every now and again and you know he would have some half of and and also scotch whiskey and whatnot and grew up with all that love it so much near and dear to my heart yeah Um, it took me a while to find all the beers because i had no idea what i was walking into it's a big one it's a big world of fermented malt beverage <laughs> yeah i i remember at age 19 somebody gave me my first like irish stout oh sure like and i was guinness like or a different one? it was guinness uh, yeah. and i was like what this is a beer you mean beer can be Dark. enjoyable i don't have to choke it down and then from there it got better like when i was introduced to sours lost my mind sours are cool sours are pretty cool and for me really hit or miss (laughs) some are better than others for me (laughs) i like most of them but the trend is going pretty cheap right now oh really like syrups you know Mm, yes yeah we know now I'm thinking about syrups in like a Berliner Weiss. Exactly. Classic. We did one of those at uh, the Ramskeller at CSU. Oh, seriously? Yeah, we brewed a Berliner Weiss. Um, it came out great. It was a bitch to brew, but it came out great. Because um, we like uh, we did like a kettle sour process for it. We just like basically threw a bag of malt in at the end of the mash and then just let it, we did a blanket of CO2 and just let it fester. And um, I think basically the the blend of bacteria in there really broke down a lot of the proteins in the mash, and it pretty much turned into like jello, and it was a nightmare to louder. Oh, no. oh god, it was so oh, it no. was so fucking horrible. It took like four hours to run off that beer. Our yield was not great, um, but god, it was so tasty. I mean, it was really fruity and light and the the sourness was really clean and crisp and then we did we had woodruff syrup and raspberry syrup and we did a mango syrup too to put in the glasses and we served it out of the rams keller and like mm, so good okay so i should clarify rams keller is at uh csu in fort collins is that where you studied fermentation sciences or one of the places i did okay Um, yeah so it's the in Gosh, it would have been, I think it was in like 
between I think between like 2016 and 2018-ish was when we, and don't quote me on that, but it, that was the sort of time that we were building uh, a small brewery in there with all donated equipment from various... Is uh, donated? Most of the Whoa. equipment, yeah, pretty much. Um, the, the brew system, I believe, was from... Oh gosh, I should know this, and I shouldn't say it, but it's, it was you know one of the large multinational brewing companies, ah, and okay. uh, it's a twelve hectoliter system, really great technology, beautiful system to look at. I mean, I'm just attractive equipment and shiny, shiny, <laughs> yeah. um, not like acid stained. Yeah, it was it was very pretty. I mean, everything was state of the art. We had a whole HMI system. I mean, technically speaking, we had it set up that if everything was actually working the way that it was intended, because a lot of stuff in there didn't really quite work perfectly, because there's a lot of bits and pieces and odds and ends and technological stuff that we didn't quite understand. It's not being you know engineers, uh, but in theory, we could have brewed remotely. Um, Oh geez. Yeah, I mean, we had we had a, a whole mill set up that had you know a grain auger and a grist hydrator and like all and all the all the valves were all automated. Every, oh my god! It's badass. <laughs> so cool. It was a, it was a treat <laughs> yeah. to learn on. Um, I got to I had the privilege of getting to brew there in my senior year. Um, we didn't get to brew as much as I might have liked. Uh, we only did a couple batches that year, but. It was just a blast. It was so much fun. Oh, that's we did so cool. We did a peach saison that was great. We did the Berliner Weiss, which was great. We did our usual Kolsch. Um, yeah, it was it was so it was so great to get to brew there, and they're still they're still doing it. It's fantastic. It's it's great. Great program. Ten out of ten would recommend going to the fermentation science program at CSU. Nice. Full of space aliens. Full of space aliens. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you remember what you said at like when I met you? I never remember anything I say. Uh, that's <laughs> that's a rule. I just say it. <laughs> I don't bother with remembering. <laughs> I, I leave that to other people. <laughs> so we were we were at a brew fest, and I wanted to try your beer, and I I think I walked up and like got the sample and went like this and you said something like oh (laughs) (laughs) i yeah yeah that that is a good one about um you know i see people that don't smell their beer first and yeah the line is that uh any people that don't you know smell their beer first don't get foreplay how unfortunate for them. Yeah, I mean... Why are you drinking the beer? Like, why why are you drinking it if you don't care? Fully appreciate it. Appreciate the aroma. Your, uh, your nose is important. Like, the whole reason this glass is big enough for your nose to go in is because it's supposed to. Yeah. Give it a whiff. <laughs> I'm out here trying to huff compounds. That's why I'm into... That's part of why I'm really into whiskey is... Uh, one of the great pleasures of whiskey is you can just sit there and just like huff it for hours, you know, because it just smells good. I'm working on it. I have a bar scar. So I'm trying to get like, get back to whiskey via the vehicle of barrel aged stouts. Sure. I mean, whatever route will get you there. Because I, I appreciate the barrel aged stout, you know? 
We've got a barrel-aged old ale coming out in two weeks. Do you really? Very excited. Yeah, um, gonna be great. No, I had my first glass of scotch, or not glass, but taste of scotch when I was like six. And I was like, mm, it burns. I love it. You liked it? <laughs> I liked it. Yeah, I always have. No. <laughs> I, I, it was a sensation I'd never experienced before in my entire life of just like a ton of ethanol. And I was like, this is fucking cool. See, my, my first drink was uh, Grand Meunier. Oh, sure. Orange. <clears throat> I was about the same age. And... I don't know why, but Dad had it in a coffee mug. <laughs> this man is on a mission. He would, normally he would never ever have it anywhere other than a snifter glass. But this time. But this time, I must have been a trial and he didn't have the snifters clean. <laughs> and so I, I saw it on the table and I was like, hey Dad, can I can I drink what you're drinking? And he was like, okay. Sure. This will be funny. <laughs> and I, I put it in my mouth. I was like, huh. <laughs> why? Yeah, I think it was. It would. I think it would have been some. Think. Supposedly, it was Dallas Dew, which is no longer in production. Um, but I don't know what it was for certain because I think it was out of a flask that was in in the pantry, and I was like, <laughs> what is this potion? This tonic. But that's far away from Hefeweizen's. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, so we're we're on to our second Hefeweizen. And Beverage of my youth. Franz's Connor. I like it. It's good. It's got a little bit more of a sulfur character, I would say. Yeah, I was trying to put my finger on. There's not that, like, mellowy banana that the... Behind Stefaner had. Yeah, Behind Stefaner is just like clean. It is wildly clean. And um, probably fermented at a pretty low. I don't know exactly what temperature they would ferment it at, but I would imagine pretty low. Um, but I think the, the sulfur character you're getting is probably. Oh, God. I miss Ochem. It wasn't bad. It wasn't that bad. It's a good class. All right. Well, obviously we're underprepared and leave us alone. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with the intro of this beer. So the Hefeweizen falls under the category of vice beers or white beers. And I think we discussed earlier, Weizen is when you mean wheat and vice is when you mean white. But they're pretty synonymous with this beer. And we are not German. So we, we are... don't actually understand the full complexity of German name, naming conventions when it comes to beer. No, <laughs> no. The closest I got is uh, I have one German aunt who did not partake in beer before she came to this country very much. Okay, well, I've got... So she can speak the language, but if I start asking her beer questions, she goes, What? No, let me talk about what I did. <laughs> we didn't have money. They didn't get beer. You know? Somewhere on my mom's side, uh, the last name is Lenhart, but that's like the German we've got, but it did not stick through the ages. <laughs> no. No. Anyways. All right, so 
I would say that on this side of the ocean, this is probably the most popular of the vice beers, but Berliner Weisses are coming hot and fast. What? Really? Huh. But technically, you can't call it a Berliner Weiss if it's not made over there. Okay, so Berliners. That's all I can call them. Anyways, the Hefe in the name is for is German for yeast. I know it's Hefe, but like I said, we call them Hefs, so I'm going to call them Hefs. And this beer is often bottle conditioned with yeast. Do you guys do that? No. No. I mean, it seems like a massive pain in the butt. Yeah. I'm not at, sure how you would do that on a bottling line. At our scale, with our lack of a bottling line and um, the way we produce things, it's we you know it's it captures certain character like a lot of characters of the style, but um, you know it's a very Americanized version. It's you know we force carbonate it in a bright tank, we keg it, we serve it on tap. Um, is what it is. I it, mean. You're doing a lot better than the Widmer brothers. Do you know do you know the story of them? No. Enlighten so, me. These guys uh, are famous for starting a German brewery. Um, however, and they started it because they they have German heritage. Sure. But they didn't have any access to the East. Sure. Any of the East. So they brewed a beer and called it a Hefeweizen, and it became pretty popular. In their local area or whatever. But it was an American wheat. That's what it was. Yeah. It's super confusing, though, for people when you see Hefeweizen, and then you find out, mm, not really. Yeah, I mean, this is... At least yours is the right yeast. Yeah, right. Well, it's got yeast in the name of the style. It's And the style of a Hefeweizen, I would say, is really... It's one of those ones that's fun because the character that's that defines it, you know, that the esters, um, all that is really yeast derived. And so and that's actually part of when I was first getting into brewing, part of why I thought the style was so fascinating was because of that. I thought it was really cool that the defining flavor that made it so interesting and exciting to me was from this, you know, little fungus that we have been in in symbiosis with for millennia. And I was like, God, that's amazing. That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy how much of an effect that has on this guy. Like, I mean, on all of them, but specifically but this specific- one is really, it's it's amazing. It, it blows my mind. Um, and I remember when I first learned, you know, it was just like so much of it was dependent on the temperature that you fermented at. And I was like, wow, that's so cool that, you know, you – you create this environment for an organism and then based on the conditions of the environment that you subject the organism to, it has certain outputs that define this style. And like, ah, it's so cool. I mean, to, I, part of why I got into brewing is to play God. And like, that <laughs> is right there. That's what it's all about. Is <laughs> you know, you, you create a microcosm for a living thing and then you toy with it to like get what you want out of it. It's amazing. It just blows my mind. Um yeah. And then I've also seen brewers just like kill it just whenever they, <laughs> they need to kill it. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's, it's just like 
well, part of it is like playing God, and the other part of it is playing angry God. <laughs> and that's where I really get off. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, the specific yeast, though, that we're talking about here is Cerulospora delbrechii, but I can't do the German accent on it very well, so it's di- delbrechii. Ah, I can't even well, do it. consider that potentially, you know, the way the German guy is saying it is, you know, just the way a German says it. It's not necessarily right. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I did look up, by the way, the guy who discovered it, mm-hmm. like isolated it. His name was Max Delbrook, and he f- discovered it over here. So, but he was a German citizen. So, so yeah, mixed bag, regardless. <laughs> mixed bag. Thanks, bud. Really appreciate you. Congrats on that Nobel Prize. That's a, that's a cool organism. <laughs> it's pretty insane. But yeah, this beer is 50 to 70% wheat malt if you're doing the traditional german way and the remainder is pilsner usually pilsner is a great malt it's so safe light. for everything right until you want to get dark well i mean it just kind of depends on the style you're using but yeah it's just it's nice and light bodied and like yeah um no with pilsner malt it's important to if you've got a lot of pilsner malt in your mash bill you're gonna want to boil pretty hard just to make sure you don't get like any DMS because it has a sort of like cooked corn sort of weird sulfury character that's just like generally speaking an off character in some styles a little bit of it's like okay but generally speaking it's pretty pretty easily perceptible and a little funky and weird so and that's one of these things that comes from because Pilsner malt's not like it's not super modified it's not super roasted so that compound ends up in there a lot at least the precursors and um it develops but it's really vol it's really volatile so when you boil it evaporates out um yeah but anyway there's pilsner malt in it yeah <laughs> oh okay okay i'm i'm still learning all of it so this beer is pale straw to amber and has a characteristic thick moose-like head and good retention tends to be hazy and I definitely want to talk about the haze part of it because I know that depends obviously on how much yeast they leave in the beer, but also I read something about protein. Yeah, so did I. So, and a lot of what you just said really comes down to the protein and that in this case really comes down to the the wheat, which is a really high protein grain, um, at least comparatively to the barley. Uh, And so... There's a lot that goes into this, and like I am not Charlie Banforth, so like I'm gonna talk about foam. Like <laughs> I listened to him; he's great. Wizard, he's... wizard. Um, but uh, yeah, so what I was uh, looking into was saying basically that one of the benefits for the haze in this style um, is the protein can kind of isolate yeast. And allow it to sort of stay in suspension rather than sort of glomming and, and falling out of suspension. Oh, okay. So that's part of how the haze stays is through the combination of protein complexes um, surrounding and kind of keeping the yeast separate from each other so they don't form into larger uh, particulate and fall out of solution thanks to Stokes Law. What is Stokes Law? I'm not going to... 
I don't remember the specific, you know, variables and everything, but basically it's an equation for the settling of particulate in a solution. Oh my gosh. See, that's, that's why I like brewing, is so much of it is actually science. Well, everything is. It... <laughs> but, like, there's care involved here in this industry. Yes. Yeah. And, like, the more, the more, as the years go on, we learn more and we care even more. Because, like, <laughs> the, fu- the funny thing is, is, you know, people have known about this stuff in, you know, as, like, inputs and outputs and getting results and clarity and stuff for, you know, millennia. But the, fur- the further science goes and analytical equipment goes and, you know, people devoting their lives to the study of these things, the further we actually understand why any of that shit works. And then they'll yeah. do it better. Yeah, because I'm, I'm sure there were a bunch of monks who were like, hey, do this, don't do this. But yeah, or like just imagine, you know, just imagine figuring out ice and glass, you know, like oh putting collagen in a, in a beer and it helps to <laughs> clarify because turns out it's like positively charged and so it attracts compounds and so it forms large particulate and falls out of solution thanks to Stokes' law. Like, <laughs> ooh, ooh, that's another question I have. Okay, so at my brewery, we have a centrifuge and Vision. most... Most beers go through the centrifuge, but I have a feeling this guy would be harmed a little bit. Yeah, you would not have that same haze. Yeah. You'd lose that haze, for sure. Centrifuge is an awesome, awesome piece of equipment. Um, But yeah, it, uh, that, you know, and that's cool because the, uh, the, that one actually applies Stokes Law, but it's funny because of the way that the uh, centrifugal force it you know goes horizontally yeah. onto these surfaces and then psh, scoops it out. Um, and does it make that horrifying loud noise it's when it's an it, awful noise? Yeah, when it when it ejects any, uh, it's like ejects the plugs and it's like a freaking bomb goes off. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> but the pasteurizer that we have also makes horrid noises. The sound the of motors. industry. Yeah. <laughs> Which, which scares me where I'm like, I think the motor's working too hard. It definitely sounds like it's working too hard. Are you sure it's not going to like... How does it smell? Does it have that like... It doesn't w- smell. Well, then it's probably fine. Because yeah, mo- when a motor's working too hard, it has that working too hard motor smell, which like <laughs> smells of fear. It it's does smell like, of fear. It's hot and it's like... Oh, I, I don't know. The word that comes to mind is inky, but it's just like this weird, gross smell we had uh, a motor making that smell, and that she had to get that fixed. Um, it's like a burnt burnt oil, or or rubber. Now I'm thinking about my mom's old blender. <laughs> that thing that thing would work too hard. Oh. Well, I was always like, all right, you gotta you gotta go in like 15 to 30 second bursts, or else it's gonna blow up. Jeez. <laughs> oh, it never did. I think it still works. I think she still has it. Like Oyster brand. Yeah. Like Dude. a boss. They don't build blenders like they used to. Uh, yeah. Okay, so we are obviously intoxicated. Uh, yeah, well, but we're drinking this in proper glassware. Yes. Because I went to a brewery and got proper glassware. Because you should be serving this in a Hefeweizen glass. They're shaped like a vase. And you can put flowers in them. But I don't think you should do that. Make a really good bud base. I mean, like right? I used to. Be, I was a florist for like 
two years and I sold flowers for two years before that and like you could make this work really well. It's a nice face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But also, um, I'd be worried about you getting all the crap out of it after you use it as a vase because you're going to need to drink beer out of it as well. Or you get separate ones. <laughs> I don't have the space for more than two. <laughs> but yeah, so this beer probably serve around 45 degrees Fahrenheit and you should definitely pour it correctly. How do you pour it correctly? Well, the way I've been doing it, which uh, supposedly is correct or correct enough, um, you pour the vast majority of the beer into the glass, but you leave a little, you know, maybe a couple ounces, one or two, three or four, at the bottom of the bottle. You give it a swirl to make sure you pick up all the yeast that settled to the bottom of the bottle, and then you just sort of whoosh, let that into the glass pretty vigorously to create that, you know, wonderful voluptuous head that we're oh, yeah. after um yeah, yeah yeah i mean obviously because we're drinking we're drinking from glasses we aren't drinking off tap because i don't have the money for that but you want like four inches of head two to four yeah you really decent, do decent quant it's yeah that's how, how it is it's and there's slump. room in this glass for it like this one's huge you could fit i mean these are how many ounces 12 ounce mm -hmm bottles but um i've got room for like six inches and why do we want the head uh generally speaking you know this it's it's a major it's a matrix of protein and gas and uh and some liquid and you know it holds these various uh volatile compounds for the aroma in there and so it helps to really you know, give longevity to the experience of those aroma compounds. You know, they're they're held in that matrix. So as you huff and whiff and sniff, um, you get all the good stuff out of it. And then, you know, at a certain point, the the head will eventually dissipate um, to a degree. And, you know, you can swirl it up and get some more. Um, or you yeah. can just accept that you have enjoyed the aroma and just keep drinking. Um, you don't need to think too much about it. <laughs> I mean, with this one, it's really nice that it keeps coming back. Yeah. Oh, it's got great head retention. And again, huge protein content in this beer, so... Makes sense. Great, lacy, beautiful, thick, moosey, foamy head. It's just purdy. Now, enemies of beer head retention include lipstick, oils on your fingers, and lemons. You don't need a frickin' lemon with your Hefeweizen. I never even heard of that until today. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I believe it. I don't. I don't know why you would, why you would do that. Well, I think I think it's people thinking of like an orange with a blue moon. Exactly. Saying that. <laughs> I mean, a blue moon is not the height of wit beers. I wouldn't say so. So. I'm not going to complain about an orange on there. <laughs> no, I'm thinking about the wit beer we made in Scotland. Is we we did we did one with um, the right yeast and we did one with half yeast. What? And we did it with grapefruit. Oh jeez. We called it Angry Belgian Man, <laughs> and in honor of the UK delegate that was or the the EU delegate that was dealing with Brexit and just like we had a picture of him and he was all stressed out. <laughs> um, Sorry, bud. 
Yeah, it's actually, it was pretty all right. Um, now I'm thinking, about, God, we did some weird shit over there in school. <laughs> That's awesome, though. That's awesome. What a perfect name, the Angry Belgian. Angry Belgian man. Yeah. Angry Belgian man. Yeah. I mean, because I'm, I'm just picturing, like, the grapefruit warring with the banana in this. It was weird. And also, the as far as, like, the fermentation control goes, because we did it at a small brewery um, outside of Edinburgh, and, like, it was, like, a little, like, class project thing, so they threw it in some little plastic fermenters and tossed it in a cooler, and, like, you know, it, it like, it turned out like a beer, um, but it, it definitely, you know, it, it did not receive probably the same amount of care that it could have benefited from, um, but you know what? We got a decent grade. Oh, good. <laughs> so we got to keep a few bottles, <laughs> so it was all right. Where where were you studying over there? I was at Harriet Watt University for a study abroad program for five months, just southwest of Edinburgh. For yeah, it was it was sweet. I was in their uh, brewing and distilling program. Um, just like as I said, I like Scotch whiskey, and like I wanted to learn about that, and hopefully someday I'll make it back there, and hopefully still. <laughs> Be making a scotch whiskey someday that'd be really really special to me um but uh yeah so for class we did we did that brew we did some little small distillations and we also did a uh a class brew on the system at harriet watt um that was weird we did a uh we did a porter that we fermented with belgian ale yeast it was super- interesting it was the teacher's favorite. Um, and it was this, you know, dark, chocolatey beer, but also really estery and fruity and strange. Um, and it was, I, I quite liked it. I thought it was a really interesting thing. Um, and it was fun because, you know, it's like, you're students. You're not going to sell this. It can be weird and strange and unmarketable. <laughs> and it was. And I mean, we're putting things in categories here, but... There weren't originally necessarily categories for beer. So I don't see any reason why the industry isn't going to go off on those wild directions. I hope it does. I think I think the world is better with more strange and bizarre stuff that confuses people and causes cognitive dissonance. I think that's important and integral <laughs> to the human experience. <laughs> see, and like when I work in the tap room, I'm just like, Please let me help you understand what you're ordering. I'll categorize it for you. I'll tell you. I'll I tell want you, all you about to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here, why don't you listen to my words and then taste this, and we'll figure out what you like. I don't like it. Doesn't taste like a course. <laughs> <sighs> See, and it's really hard to understand what what people want if uh, if they don't know. Mm-hmm. Like if I start asking questions and they're like. What is an ester? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like those are the questions I'm going to ask. It's, well, that's good. Yeah, they're like, well, I don't like that. Okay. Like, let's let's go into what what do you not like? I don't like bitter. Okay, we can work with that. We can go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It is tricky. And I think that's one of the funny things is, like, the world of beer is so vast. And there's so much to you know understand about all these different styles and what makes what taste like what and what you actually like and all that and you know if people don't have the vocabulary to even 
describe what they're thinking of, it's really hard when there's no shared lexicon between yes. you and the customer. And um, yeah. that's why I love it when I see somebody that smells their beer first. Because usually that means they have some modicum of understanding. Usually. Sometimes I'm just lucky. <laughs> but... Yeah, or they're like a whiskey drinker and they're like, this is just what I do. Yeah, I mean, it depends on if they are like someone that drinks whiskey right or wrong. Some people are, are whiskey drinkers. They just shoot it. Oh, my God. I uh, I had that happen actually with um, like barrel strength bourbon when I was working at a distillery. And mm. oh, my God. First, first, I made this guy a double and he shot it back. And I was like, Tony. I was like, okay, um, you must be having a rough day. Uh, he's like, yeah, can you make me an old fashioned? So I'm like, okay, he's gonna sip this one. Shoot it down back. the hatch. I was like, bud, um, I can't make you another. I know you're a big man, but uh, step into my re-education camp. <laughs> you can't. First of all, you can't be doing that. It's pretty disrespectful. And second of all, I don't know if you can drive. Right? <laughs> I don't know, bud. <laughs> Stresses me out. You're stressing me out. Yeah, always drink responsibly. <laughs> all right, so aroma-wise, this hef has distinctive yeast that we talked about uh, that contributes to the phenolic and estery smells coming off of it. So phenols gonna come off as clove-like esters gonna come off as banana-like in this case and the hop aroma is barely Negligible. perceptible i i have to concentrate to even get what i think is a whiff oh yeah some some um, kind of terpene <laughs> yeah i think that one's hop i think at the end when it stings a little in my nose i think that's a hop it's hard to know there's also a light to moderate wheat aroma that a lot of people perceive as bready or grainy. Sometimes there's a little bit of vanilla or bubblegum in there too. I don't know if I get... Do you ever do the retro nasal stuff? No. What? What? You never... All right. So you plug your you nose. You plug? Swallow and breathe out your nose. That's weird. They teach that at New Belgium sensory courses and at CSU. Because CSU's got a lot of new belgium sponsorship and professors from there um but there are some characters that you'll get off of retro nasal um and i get a little bit more of like the sort of burdock bubblegum kind of character um okay that's fair because csu's got a lot of new belgium sponsorship and professors from there um but there are some characters that you'll get off of retro nasal um the more you know vanilla though i feel like it's just the banana fading Isohamyl acetate's a hell of an ester. Tastes great. Um, I like it. All right, body of the beer. Medium light to medium, but the addition of the suspended yeast can make it more seem more full-bodied, which I definitely agree with. Yeah, it's definitely for a beer with a you know the the character to this beer I would say is overwhelmingly light. It's almost like it's like some sort of a a Weiss beer or something. Oh, <laughs> crazy! What? Um, but for that light character, uh, it does have a, a really satisfying body. I think, um, 
which is part of my, uh, like, I mean, you know, it's, I feel like this is a style that's classic for a hot summer day or something like that. And oh, yeah. Something, and something about a decent amount of body is, you know, just deeply satisfying to me for a drink. Um, well, something to work with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like full, just the full mouthfeel just is satisfying. And then you've got that really carbonated finish that just stings. The Carbonic bubble. acid, baby. <laughs> I heard a brewer call it bubble pain, and I love that. Love that. Mm. So now I'm thinking about like ways to make bubbles that hurt your skin. <laughs> like, people should never let me think too much. <laughs> what was the other? Oh, we, we have a brewer who calls it spicy air. Spicy air. Yeah, CO2 is spicy air. Yeah, dude. Oh Don't my walk God. under the spicy air. The number of times that I've been washing out a tank and like I've I've got my head down low kind of to like try to get a look at like the Bronhefa on the top of the tank and some spray in it. And then just like a waft of CO2 hits me. I'm like, oh, oh, it's got me. <laughs> we, so my, my intro to uh, my fellow staff members was like, what was, what's the way you'd prefer to die? And one of the guys was like, whatever it is, I don't want it spicy air death. <laughs> no death by CO2. <laughs> spicier like walk into a room full of co2 and just like or fall into the tank full of co2 and just just die just die yeah that's that'd be a bummer um that and osha would have words yeah (laughs) i don't think they'd be thrilled no but we don't have an accident counter You just said that recording. You better edit that. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I just mean like, it's not like we're counting down the days and being like, look, we made it. Yeah, we made it, guys. (laughs) Nobody lost a finger. (laughs) Yeah. Although I've heard from uh, some industries near us that losing a digit is 1,500 and losing a thumb is 2,500 from insurance. It's not enough. That is not enough. <laughs> that is not enough money. <laughs> yeah, but people take it and they go, okay. Okay, daddy insurance. Thank you. Oh my God. Yeah. No no missing fingers. None, none at the brewery. That's I low promise. on my list. That's low on my list. Oh, okay, so we talked about aroma, but the flavor definitely follows the aroma here. Where we've got the moderately strong banana and clove balanced by the rest of it but those are definitely the most prominent flavors and then you get the soft bready wheat character and slightly grainy sweet malt character but there's almost no hot flavor and the bitterness is pretty low to moderately low mm-hmm. it's generally speaking a more sweet beer it's, i think part of what i like about this style is like it's really approachable for people because it's, you know, bitterness isn't everyone's bag, but sweetness is generous. People like a nice amount of sweetness. And then it's got these, you know, it's not just like fruity, like a, like a citrusy, you know, IPA or anything like that. It's, it's a unique kind of fruit character to it and a unique sort of spiciness to it. It's the whole style I've always found to just be, interesting and kind of exciting and i think like anytime i'm like 
bringing beers to someone that I know isn't a big beer drinker, I'll usually bring a Hefeweizen because I find that they're like, whoa, this is like, this is a beer? And it's like, yeah, it is. I haven't tried that. Mm-hmm. I keep giving them like lagers because I'm like, this is safe. It's safe, but this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'd rather be interesting than safe any day. I, I agree. So the quote I found from BJCP guidelines was that the sweetness you get from this beer is more a consequence of the low hot profile than actual residual sweetness, which I thought was interesting. I can see that. I can see that. Bitterness and astringency definitely, you know, sort of contribute to th- those characters really kind of cut the perception of sweetness. So it would make sense that a lacking of those would, you know, accentuate a perception of sweetness. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I definitely get like the the maltiness can end in sweetness. Like when you, I don't know if you've ever let like Cheerios sit in your mouth. I've never eaten Cheerios. <laughs> so, <laughs> Cheerios. Never had a Cheerio in my life. <laughs> oh my gosh. They're such a good sort of source for carbs. But if you let Cheerios sit on your tongue, uh, the salivary amylase will break them down and then it starts to taste sweet. Which is what I get here is like malt and wheat can be sweet. What's that? There's like a. It's either Central or South American um, fermented beverage. It's like oh yeah yeah chicha chicha something like that where it's it, they chew up corns yes and then they... from maize <laughs> and the salivary amylase is is how they saccharify it for fermentation like oh I think about that more often than a teenage me ever would think I would think about something like that. No, I just, yeah, as soon as I heard about that, I was like... That's amazing. Whoa. That's so cool. You're just, you're just doing it with yeah. your mouth? How long does that take? How much water do you have to drink to be able to keep doing that? Could you imagine getting paid to just, like, sit there for an afternoon and just, like, chew on corn and spit in a bucket? Yeah, I'd have a book with me. Yeah, be a good and time. you'd get paid. Get paid. <laughs> Nothing. Pesos. <laughs> Pesos. All right, so we're not paying for this one too hard because the ABV is going to be between 4.3 and 5.6. What's that one? Well, the one we had first, 5.4, falls within our 5% on the nose with Francis Connor. Nice, 5%. All right, so we got to also do SRM, which is 2 to 9 for this one, and that is the standard reference method where we shine a light through the beer and measure more the opacity not so much the color because i know that gets confused for color all the time and then ibus are our last guy they're gonna be 8 to 15 and this one is such a pet peeve for so many people in the industry international bitterness units okay so, this is not a measurement for perceived bitterness. Right? Alpha acids. <laughs> it's isoalpha acids in solution. It's not like Schofield units where you have like 
<laughs> heat and, and a measurement of the heat. But uh, we keep using them. I know they're supposed to be like a lab standard in the beginning. And now everybody's like, ooh, how many IBUs does your beer have? Oh, God, yeah. That's always a fun one. And you know, to be fair, like with a with with it's like it's named in such a way that the consumers just like bitterness unit. I mean that like yeah. Oh, it's 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 a tricky yeah. one. Yeah, and I was so I decided to look this up at one point, and I was like, okay, what are the compounds that we know of in beer that are perceived as bitter? And it was alpha acids, beta acids and ethanol itself and i was like okay so we have a standard that's only measuring one of those yeah no that's not gonna that's not gonna be perceived bitterness then <laughs> and we don't even know like there could be other compounds in there that we perceive as bitter and we haven't identified them yet Always more research to be done. Oh, jeez. Have you considered pursuing a master's? <laughs> There's a thesis waiting for you. Oh, yeah. So our, our lab guy, his old boss is pursuing, is doing a thesis on like, oh, something flavor compounds. Now I can't remember exactly. Which ones? What kind? Oh, it was, and it was also like parts per million that are perceivable by people. Mm, yeah, the, like the perception thresholds for compounds. Yes, which is really interesting. It is. It's cool because some things, I mean, like, for instance, the uh, the four vinyl glycol, the clove character is, like, got a pretty pretty low threshold. doesn't take much of that for you to be like, oh, which is cool. That's awesome. But I know there are a couple compounds where it's got to be, like, hundreds of parts per million before you even know that it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's neat. It's like, Analytical uh, equipment is like prohibitively expensive. <laughs> there's, uh, okay. There's so many times people ask me like, "Do you do you check this?" And I'm like, "I'd love to." <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, but I cannot. Do you have a rich uncle like <laughs> who's interested in allowing to you know get me like a, a GCMS? <laughs> when we were um, doing uh, so, my my like senior project that we did uh, was with the analytical lab at new belgium and oh yeah they have those right they do yeah i i got to prepare some samples for the gcms and work with uh stacy williams who is like freaking awesome chemist uh and it was it was really cool just you know because we were our whole thing was trying to figure out um you know like there's all this talk of biotransformation and like you know freeing up uh terpenes from hops that are like bound to various sugars and things by yeast oh whoa it's a whole thing um that is like not entirely understood and is in many ways a point of contention in in many discussions and like i you know like we will play it cool here but it's cool that you know you could you could actually measure how much was in these samples of you know various things like geraniol and linalool and all that and it was whoa yeah yeah it, and the equipment is amazing and like uses all kinds of crazy ionized gases and like is just like conceptually what is going on in one of those machines and what it takes to make one work is such a 
feat of human ingenuity that it like boggles the mind that we even cracked that in the first place and we use it to make better beer and that to me is so heartwarming because <laughs> it is i mean it's incredible so so i have i have a really good quote for you from joseph awadies who brewed the first like modern version of a light lager and he moved to california as you do and he was asked like you're in one country now aren't you going to use your biochemistry for winemaking instead of beer now and he went no they don't need my skills they have everything they need packaged in this perfect little grape <laughs> the grape <laughs> they don't need a biochemist they're just fine it's all packaged it's all ready to go it was like whoa okay interesting oh anything that like i mean even when you just think about just the action of yeast biochemically and what it does it's in i mean as far as biosynthesis of like compounds organisms do it better i mean like insulin production with e coli incredible i mean it's it's cool that we like you know tricked it with plasmids and stuff and like figured all that out but the the machinery of nature is so perfect and exquisite that i mean that's part of why i am just like so into microbiology is it just like the leaps of chemistry that are being done in these the, in these simplest units of life like oh it's so cool like <laughs> the kinds of you know enzymes that fungi are making to like break down whatever they come encounter with like oh my god it's just it's unbelievable and the the things that happen in grapes amazing and oh my god i it's it's hard not to be just completely blown away with wonder and amazement when you look at what is happening at a cellular at a cellular level in any organism really i mean any part of any organism just god i yeah it it's amazing the systems of life are so freaking beautiful it's reason enough to learn about these topics to properly appreciate the world around you from this minute scale that we all share yeah it gets me so excited it's so cool which like we were talking about earlier before we started recording i got really confused when we started getting into the the proteolytic enzymes of the yeast, I mean, of the wheat, and, like, how you have to take care of the yeast, but also you have all this stuff in the barley and in the wheat that is already ready to help the yeast out. Yeah, well, so it's kind of cool. when you. So one of the, when I was in school, part of how they taught and talked about the mashing process was as a continuation of germination. 
Um, yeah, that's because interesting. Because it's, it's okay, because like, the thing is, is like, the barley corn, as it's getting hydrated and warmed up, because it's, you know, imagining it's in the soil, it's rained, it's spring, you're a corn of barley ready to sprout, like, come on, baby. And it starts releasing these various enzymes, you know, like, I think the first one is like gibberellic acid, which triggers a layer of the corn to start releasing like, oh God, it, there's like a specific order that releases the various enzymes. But um, one of the first ones is proteolases to break down the protein matrix that's holding all the starches and sugars bound up tight in the corn so they become accessible to be processed and used for energy to then you know grow a new shoot and start propagating the species and so when we malt things we start the germination process we convert these starches into accessible sugars or at least we get that process moving and then we arrest it with heat through roasting which also develops flavor through the maillard reaction um what is the maillard reaction it's uh, reducing sugars reacting with amino acids from proteins to produce a wide variety of flavor compounds. Um, the it's like when you cook things and they turn brown, my art reaction. Um, and like that, I, I should probably know that better than I do, but it's it's fascinating it's really tantamount to like why our food tastes so goddamn good um and but then you you arrest that with you arrest the whole germination process through heat and roasting drying everything out removing water from the system because you know water is it 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 makes things work It, it moves energy around because of its polarity and everything it's it's the best we're so lucky to have it um, <laughs> we would we would be just a, a hot rock covered in gas if we didn't have it um but uh don't quote me on that. i don't actually understand like planetary stuff but uh anyways um then in mashing you reintroduce water and heat and this stuff and you get that process going again and so at these various temperatures uh, and hydrations and pHs, these enzymes, you know, kick back into action because it's it's amazing. Despite being a living system, there are measurable and understandable uh, parameters that these chemicals and compounds and complexes function at, um, and so. You know, you in like, for you know, as we're probably going to at some point talk about here with uh, traditional brewing, um, the decoction method, you like, you have these various rests um, for the, the mash where it's, you know, held at a certain temperature for a certain duration. And, you know, for like the first one year, there's enzymes that are functioning that are dropping down the pH a little bit and then through dropping the pH, it improves the functionality of amylases later to free up sugars for the yeast. And then in your second step, you're holding it at like somewhere around, you know, in the range of 50 degrees Celsius. And that is 
promoting the functionality of proteolases and those are breaking down these proteins and so you go from these long chain proteins in the wheat to it you know they get chopped up into much shorter little things of you know various free amino nitrogens and amino acids and shorter proteins and all that which contribute to haze they contribute to yeast health having a lot of free amino nitrogen is really good for your yeast and that's part of why barley is such a great grain to use for beer is because it has a lot of uh you know generally speaking you know depending on the strain and and you know whatnot and how it's malted and everything but there's a lot of free amino nitrogen hopefully which is uh a great nutrient you know because things need protein to function if you're a living organism like that's that's what makes the show go baby or at least one of the things that makes the show go uh and that's part of why like for instance if you're making mead you have to add like a yeast nutrient is because it's it's you know you're you don't have that same protein content you just have have sugar you just have sugars interesting so you have to add something so the yeast can really work um and same with like oxygenating your wort so that there's oxygen to produce sterols to create cell walls so that the yeast can properly reproduce and bud. Do you know what a mating pair of yeast is called? Isn't a mother, well, I don't know the mating, but it's mother and then daughter cells. So, okay, yeast can do genetic exchange. There's the A yeast and the alpha yeast. The alpha yeast connects to the A yeast and they form what is called a shmoo. That is the technical term, <laughs> and it makes me laugh every time because it's a little, a little glob of, of meat. It's called a shmoo. So, whenever you're what? feeling down, remember that there is a technical term for when yeast are out there doing it, and it's called a shmoo. Oh my gosh! How's it? How's it spelled? I think it's S C H M O O. Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, but yeah, so uh, in, you know, these traditional mashing methods, and part of why they did like a decoction mash where you pull off like a third of the mash and you boil it, um, was they didn't even have thermometers. So it's just a way to make sure you get your temperature up and it worked, you know, and, and also when you're boiling the, the mash, it's at a temperature, you're getting the Maillard reactions, you're developing flavor. And that was first employed in like a Berliner Weiss and actually uh, they never even boiled the whole, they didn't, you know, run off and boil. They would just do these decoctions, get the, get the sugar into the wort, run off into a cool ship. And then because the Berliner Weiss is, you know, a sour beer. And so then it just a microbial succession would take place where organisms would just, you know, go to town on these different, food compounds in a fluid and you know one organism eats all the sugar and then something eats everything that it makes and they produce all these amazing compounds and bring the ph down low enough that organisms which will kill us just can't survive i mean it's it's so cool (laughs) yeah so i've i've heard that bierstadt in denver still uses like solely decoction or two-step mash i'm not sure there's a there's a lot of different ways to do a decoction okay you can do single infusion decoction double triple there's like 
a, like there's a litany of ways you can do it because the thing is is this is a tradition which has been going on for like thousands of years we've tried so many things and so many of them work and it's kind of a question of how do you want to achieve your end goal and why is this process going to give you what you want better than another one so like you know doing a you can do a protein rest in a single infusion mash uh just fine for a half and you know as far as time efficiency and equipment efficiency and everything um it generally speaking that's the modern way i mean there are still places that do like a triple decoction so they're pulling off three times mm -hmm. and then putting back mm -hmm. yeah so you pull off the first it's you know each time you pull off you boil a portion raise that temperature way up and then you put it back into the main mash and then that temperature is going to homogenize and raise the whole batch temperature to the next step where a different enzyme where a different set of enzymes are going to have proper function and then you know you do that a few times so you get you know acidification protein breakdown and also development of certain compounds precursors for different aroma compounds because like part of what's so cool about a decoction in a Hefeweizen mash is that in that temperature range, you're getting more ferulic acid out of the wheat, which then is converted into that clove, that clove character uh, from the yeast, the four vinyl guaiacol through, I wrote it down, uh, ferruloyl esterases. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. And so okay. that is getting, you know, pulled out of pulled out of the wheat in that uh, mash temperature. And then you pull off again and boil and then put it back and you raise up to a sacrification temperature where you get your sugars. And it's kind of it's it's interesting because this process, you know, when you're boiling the mash, you are destroying some of the enzymes, which are going to break down these starches into digestible sugars for the yeast. But you're also just breaking down the, the wheat germ and breaking down the starches through just like pure heat and vigor of a boil. Okay. So it's also, you know, easier for the enzymes to affect it at, during the scarification rest. So they've had all the barriers broken down. Yeah, yeah. Through just like raw heat and energy being applied to these freaking grains. Which... I mean, so so we should clarify that proteins can unravel with heat. Like most things. Like most things. I love heat. Denature is the word. That you can denature them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Oh, now I'm thinking about prions. I am too! <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so there's a, there's a protein that you cannot denature with heat. It's too simple. It's too prions. simple and too deadly. It's freaking terrifying. We're not going to get into that, but <laughs> you should Google it. You should Google it. <laughs> and we're going to get another beer. So we are on to Erdinger Vice Beer. Let's see. What are you? Ooh, bottle ferment? Bottle fermented. Is this the first one that's been bottle fermented? Sure. Smells bready, very bready. 
Have you heard of that phenomenon where uh, people can blow like a ridiculous number because fermentation was going on in their oh, stomach? Oh, auto brewery syndrome? <laughs> You're the one where homie got it from boofing yeast? What? Yes, yeah, some guy fucking put yeast up his ass. And, <laughs> dude, because science. And he gave himself auto brewery syndrome, uh, which, like, that'll do it, I guess. <laughs> nutty right yeah so Could people you... people have gotten off duis because it was proven that crazy stuff was going on in their stomach where it was the process of fermentation and they burped it out let's get like a green apple kind of mm, character yeah maybe towards the towards the end where is abv I think it's 5.3. See, that's why these are easy beers. Is We've got a low ABV. You're not going to be punished. Unless you punish yourself. Unless you punish yourself. Sometimes that's the only person that's going to do it for you. Oh. Yeah, I can't find Where? It. Oh, 5.3. Yeah, it's down. Oh. Bingo, dingo, scringo. Hidden. This Ooh. one's different. It is definitely different. Raisiny. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I see that. Like, up front, much more of a hit than, like, Wahein Stefano is, like, pillowy. The, that's the cleanest one. Wahein Stefano is such a freaking nice beer. Is it time to get into the story? Is it story time? It is story time. Okay. So, as we talked about earlier, tribes in Central and Northern Europe started making beer with wheat and barley in the Bronze Age. About 1000 BC. But we also know that the Sumerians were brewing with a type of wheat in Mesopotamia as early as like 4000 BC. So, wheat beer is not new pretty old and the version we're talking about today kind of starts with Hans the fourth Duke of Degenberg who starts a vice beer brewery in the town of Schwarzach in the 1500s which was great until it became a problem in 1516 when we have the first Reihensgebot Binga, 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 binga. <laughs> German beer purity laws, which uh, do not allow wheat at all in the beginning. <laughs> However, uh, the Duke Wilhelm IV really still needed the Degenbergs because he's got to fight his wars and he needs them to bring troops. So you can't pick piss off the other dukes. So he said, all right, you guys can still brew, uh, but we're going to tell people that it's shit. Because <laughs> wheat doesn't make pure beer. Which is interesting that they said that. Probably, probably had nothing to do with the fact that uh, they were in a uh, feud. I'm sure there's no relation. I'm sure there's no relation. 
yeah, nothing, nothing to do with the fact that Wilhelm's father, um, in the Bockler War, took away the Degenbergs' historic castle. Probably had nothing. No. No, nothing, nothing to do with their, their laws. All right, so Degenbergs still not allowed to brew in Schwarzach. And they're allowed to expand their territory a little bit. Wilhelm's son, Albrecht V, not so politically savvy. He decides that wheat beer is a, quote, useless drink that neither nourishes nor gives strength, but only encourages drunkenness. And says, I'm going to tax the crap out of you, Degenbergs, for every beer that you sell. What a champ. Yep. Yep. Sounds like a spoiled brat. <sighs> Sounds like something. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so Baron Hans Sigmund, he's a Degenberg, says, Bullshit. I am not paying this fucking tax. And adds fire to this feud. Unfortunately for him, feud ends in 1602 when he dies. And didn't leave an heir. So the rights to brew the wheat beer then go to the Bavarian House of Dukes. Of course, by that time, Duke Albrecht had already abdicated the throne to his son Maximilian I in 1597. Maximilian, however, is a businessman and immediately had the Schwarzach Brewery appraised. And apparently he liked what he saw because he stole their head brewer and brought him to Munich to oversee the construction of a new brewery. He decides he's going to invest in this. And they put it right next to the Royal Hofbrauhaus and declare that Weissbeer is an exclusive right of the House of Dukes and require that all pubs and inns serve Weissbeer. It's a bit of a flip on its head, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Sound like some hypocrites to me. Aren't we all? <laughs> Why did he do that? Well, he's going to tax the crap out of it. And uh, he's going to make a fortune. And it's going to fund the Thirty Years' War for him. Perfect. Well played, <laughs> Maxie. <laughs> on the other hand... The state-owned vice beer breweries are really struggling to keep up with demand because now they're required. required. <laughs> they got to produce enough for. Could you imagine going from everything. your product is basically illegal to your product is mandatory? Mandatory. Oh shit! <laughs> so they can't keep up. They have no time. These guys are working like a hundred hours a week. <sighs> they do not have time to go to mass. Even though the churches are within, like, minutes of the brewery. And since mass is a big deal, we're in the 18th century. They end up building a chapel inside the brewery and bringing priests in to hold services just so the brewers can continue brewing so that they can fund this war. You need holy beer if you're going to have a holy war. <laughs> yeah, you do. By the end of the century, though, sales have taken a nosedive, 
and the breweries are slowly sold off one by one, and vice beer is kind of falling into obscurity. Or it would have if it weren't for the brewer George Snyder, who negotiated the rights to brew the vice beer away from the royals and into the private sector, where it slowly regains popularity and survives to have its full resurgence after World War II. Which is why we can still drink it. Thank God. Thank George. Thank George. <laughs> Mr. Schneider, everybody. Schneider. Cheers. Cheers, bud. I really like this Erdinger. I do too. It's it's really distinct from the others. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be on purpose. You gotta differentiate from the you have a good competition, you know. That's one of those funny things about beer styles is there's, you know, like what makes, you know, this style, this style. But if you, you know, figuring out what little variations you can do to have, a, you know, something unique is amazing to me. Yeah, and they manage and it's not, it's not like it's off style either. Just different. Just different. That's quite a story. It's it's fun. That's one of the things I love about beer is that it's, you know, got such rich history. Because it's, you know, been a part of our society since, you know, we first figured out society. Which is cool. And, you know, there are those of us that prescribe to the concept that it's part of why we have society. <laughs> I mean, so many of these innovations were fueled by this industry refrigeration 100 percent. in fact talk about it in the hellas episode yeah. because it was a brewer who funded the research and the innovation that leads to the first refrigerator unit fascinating yeah isn't that awesome yeah i mean totally believable too it's it's I mean, wicked cool and and he had the foresight to be like we need this I can transport beer if I can keep it cold. We can sell this in other places if it's still good and not heat damaged by travel. Because beer definitely quality is a real thing and <laughs> heat affects it. Yeah. And time affects it. Because all these molecules, they're still, you know, it beer's alive. It's alive the whole time. Things are still at work and at play in that stuff. Which I've, honestly, I've read quite a few accounts about Reinhard Skibot where people are like, yeah, so they were dumping thousands of barrels of beer because it was going bad all of the time. And it was really kind of a, a way for them to push for beer to be better because the people were rioting about Waste. <laughs> the shitty beer that was like infected all of the time. It's infected. It's pathetic. They can't keep it cold. They can't keep it hot. They can't control it. The only thing they can do is like lager it and pray that the temperature's right. Pray that you did it at the right time of year. This is why we have industry standards. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not only that, but like. The grain that they're using, they don't have 
a proper way to cook it so they were smoking it and it was super uneven and you would get all these off flavors from the grain because like this one smoked too much this one's not smoked enough so it's completely uneven and you can't even get a clear color it would be brown or black <laughs> let's hear it for smoke <laughs> i know i'm thinking about uh floor maltings for you know floor maltings yeah for like uh malt and with like scotch just and stuff uh they would it's hateful work uh that, like the, the people that would you know they you know basically be running smoke to uh you know try to arrest the malting process and there'd be dudes up in here with rakes moving the malt around so it gets so it's even oh geez for hours yeah could you imagine like, they all die at like 25 you know just <laughs> oh god they don't have masks they're breathing in the smoke they're they are peasants <laughs> i mean there's i know there's also a type of like lung disease from wheat particles and like grain particles i believe that yeah brewer's lung (laughs) i don't remember what it's called (laughs) might as well be yeah no um there's and that's one of these things that's so funny is just like over time the ways we've improved the process and all the health and safety things we've added and i mean we live in a time where you can enjoy such a variety of quality beers and whiskeys and wines all these things you know are at your fingertips we're so lucky to get all that there was a time where you know your best bet was like the decent brewer in your village and hopefully you have a decent brewer yeah if you're lucky yeah <laughs> he might be terrible <laughs> <laughs> and even then you'll drink it <laughs> yeah no it's um it's amazing i'm mm. pretty happy and one reason i've heard that uh so we live in northern colorado specifically right now we're in fort collins fort collins has a very healthy beer industry and clean water that's what I've heard. The reason is, is because the pH is pretty neutral, right? More than just the pH, it's also the minerality. So, like, oh, okay. a big part of so one of these things that I, you know, learned in school that was so cool to me was like the various styles. Part of why they are what they are is because the regions they came from had specific mineral characters to the water. So, like IPAs first came from uh, Burton on Trent in the UK, where. The water has, I believe, a lot of magnesium sulfate, which improves the perception of bitterness. Oh. And so that was part of that style was from the water. And then like Pilsen for Pilsners, that water is soft as heck. It's got nothing to it. And so you can make a beer that doesn't have a lot of salts that are contributing to differences and variations in the character of the beer london stuff and a lot of the uk things there's a lot of calcium chloride which is uh improves perception of sweetness so you get a lot of these darker sweeter beers and so and you know there's there's more to it than just that as there is with everything you know but the point being 
when you have base water that's really pretty neutral, it's like a blank palette. And from there, you can add whatever salts you want to make the profile to mimic the water of a certain style. So you can actually properly brew the style. And so because our water here is generally speaking snowmelt runoff from the Rockies, there's not a huge amount of you know mineral content that's going to skew it one way or another because there you know there are places in the world where if you're going to run a brewery of decent competence that's going to brew a wide variety of styles you're going to want like a reverse osmosis filter to be able to get your water to a you know level of clarity that you can then add the salts that you want to achieve the style you're targeting um how much of a pain is that yeah a lot (laughs) okay i mean it's that equipment is expensive that equipment is high maintenance um that equipment hasn't existed for a long time like there's there's been you know there's there's ways to get around it there's ways that we've been figuring it out through you know water treatment for a while but geographic location still matters as far as ease of brewing and quality of beer um and it's 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 a real deal uh and so here in fort collins the water is really just it's just right to brew with and it's delicious um we have really good water uh i'm gonna say not to brag well i Yes, to brag. (laughs) I mean, we have a lot of places that bottle their water here. (laughs) Bottled water. Because it tastes good. Yeah. And I've traveled and even, honestly, even down some of the suburbs, not so good. The water in Scotland is pretty good. Is it? Yeah. So delicious. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, uh... That's a huge part of beer quality is because, I mean, it, it does start with water. That's kind of the main ingredient um, is water. And it's almost like it's 90%. <laughs> even more. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty wild. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's hugely important. And, you know, really, really interesting with just that's like one of those things that when I first learned that in class, it, you know, was, it hit me like a brick, like, oh yeah, duh. But also it's totally amazing. You know, I guess that, you know, you don't, it's one of those things you don't really think about too much, you know, it's all it's beer, but like it's got to start somewhere with the water and the minerals in there and how they react with the compounds and how they react with your taste buds and all this stuff. I was, so in one of the sections about vice beer it goes into dunkelweizens and how you can use hard water if you're making dunkelweizens because it'll cover up some of the off flavors that come out because it's darker Mm -hmm. that's interesting yeah one of those things that's funny is you know styles that have existed for hundreds of years when you really get down to it that style you know a lot of these styles generally exist because that was the way to make it work in that location at that time with the technology present you know that was how people you know like well shit this works it tastes all right 
good we're gonna keep doing this and then you know you keep doing the thing that works for a hundred years and suddenly it's you know uh it's in the book someone writes it down and there's you know we've been you know zyber has been doing science on it the whole time and you know just analyzing and writing stuff down and figuring out process improvements and all that and you know lo and behold you end up with stylistic guidelines and ways that something ought to be it's it's funny and it's i think the a historic perspective when it comes to styles uh be it beer spirits wine you know really anything a historic perspective gives you an idea of why something is what it is and why you know these certain factors are important to that definition well so another reason that's been brought up as to why only barley was allowed to be used was because they had wheat shortages and they were worried about people being able to make bread rather yeah it's important not to starve (laughs) And, and there was a debate whether, like, people wanted their wheat to drink or their wheat to eat. To eat. <laughs> but if you're Egyptian, you can do both. <laughs> no, some, some of the ancient brews were really, like, bread, water beer. Thick. Thick <laughs> as a baby's arm. <laughs> Be like, I'm just imagining, like, a, a soup. It was probably it was probably all right. I mean, I'm guessing there were some off flavors in there, but I bet it was really, really filling, and no, you felt it. good. No off flavors. It was, no off flavors. It was to style. <laughs> <laughs> Those are intended. To style. Yeah. <laughs> That's the secret. This is to style. Do not question me. What you're tasting, the fart taste that is intended. <laughs> You just have to get used to it. Yeah. You obviously don't know how to appreciate this beverage, you <laughs> Philistine. <laughs> so what are we what's what's the recommended reading to go along with uh, a fine wheat beer? So for me, uh I was trying to think of the characteristics of this wheat beer. So it's something that a wide variety of people can enjoy and it's unique yeast characteristics how does yeast translate into literature yeah see that's (laughs) (laughs) that's still what i'm trying to decide how like hmm like with if we're doing an old ale you're reading a classic book by the fire are you not right that's about right yeah could be you're enjoying a nice glass. You're sitting reading like a very... Chaucer. Chaucer. <laughs> I gotta decide what we're gonna do for Old Ale, what my book recommendation is gonna be. But for this one, I'm gonna go with Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn. Because it's widely palatable. So you've got a heroine who is an orphan... And she's living in a world where it's like they failed to put the ring in the volcano and Sauron won. Classic. And it's been a thousand years since Sauron won. So ash falls from the sky and plants do not grow. And 
there is an entire class of serfs who have no hope. Super metal. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ocean's Eleven comes in. And suddenly there's a way to get back at, you know, the the system and the man. Yeah, all right, get all back right. at Sauron. What are we going to do? We're going to steal from him. Classic. <laughs> so, so I guess, you know, like, there was a little bit of a sulfury taste to one of our beers. So, like, that, that fits with the sulfur falling from the nice. sky. and L- little hellish flavor. <laughs> little hellish flame. Yeah, yeah, seriously. There are no colored plants in this book. Brutal. It's brutal. brutal. <laughs> yeah. All right, so what... What are you thinking? Book recommendation to drink with this style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, off- I said drink. I meant read while drinking. You can drink text. You could blend it. <laughs> I could do that. I bet you a book would blend. I've seen them blend iPhones. I bet you a book would blend. Yeah. You could mix yeah, it yeah. with uh, your like spitting in the face of the Germans, but. <laughs> Sometimes it has to be done. Um, I mean, that's all of American brewing, right? Someone once asked me, like, what does Europe have in their brewing that America doesn't? And I thought, tradition. Yes. (laughs) We're not tied to it. It's the Wild West, baby. Um, Like, we do whatever the hell we want. Hence, New England. (laughs) New England IPAs. And you know what? I'm really grateful for New England IPAs because a lot of people that said I don't like hops realize they don't like bitters. That's really what it is. And that to me was a revelation because I never I, I like this. I hate hops. I'm like, no, you don't. No. You're just your palate doesn't like bitterness. That's and, all right. And you, it's okay. Like nobody's born liking bitter. But somebody is. But they're weird. <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to be born liking bitter it's no. supposed to be like a warning that something's wrong yeah or you'd like poison or you like poison um if i was to recommend anything that's interesting a little spicy uh fun flavorful uh exciting and strange i you know i my favorite author is terry pratchett and if I was to recommend like a book to go off of that, that's got the fun and engaging goodness of a, a wheat beer. I really like some of his some of his later books. Towards the end of his, uh, he recently passed away a couple years ago of like early onset dementia, oh, um, geez. Or Alzheimer's, not dementia, but yeah, shame. But he wrote like a fiend while he still could, and um, there's a. Oh, actually, no, wait, German things. Um, Carpe Jugulum. There you go. That's a good one. <laughs> Carpe Jugulum. That's a, that's a wonderful book about vampires getting human rights. Um, Whoa, okay. In, in, a, in the world of the disc, which is a flat world on the back of four giant elephants on the back of a giant turtle flying through space. And, um, that's a lot if you haven't read terry pratchett do it it's just the it's the most clever literature you'll ever read in your whole life that's a tall order it's incredibly witty and it's he, he has a mastery of prose that i've never seen in anyone else 
the i mean the use of fonts of kerning of footnotes of all these things for to create a humorous complete world is incredible it's just incredible and the general themes you know are about that everyone has a purpose and value and like it's beautiful literature it's very fun and it's hilarious i mean knee slapping howling laughter hilarious all right i think it's time it's time to read terry pratchett i'll do it there's over 30 disc world books to go through it's great they're like candy (laughs) you'll tear through them they're so fun i mean i i do cheat sometimes i have an audible account they're great they're actually really great um for audible yeah they're great for audiobooks because they're they they read as a story they read really well to a person because they're great for reading to kids and stuff. They're just, they're wonderful books. Read Terry Pratchett. It'll make your life better. I guarantee it. Okay. Guarantee it. Okay. I think you sold me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so thank you for listening to this episode. Um, we're going to have Facebook, social media. You can reach out, have a discussion. I'm sure we'll try and get guests in for that discussion because they can answer some questions that maybe I can't. And if you want to buy me a beer, support the podcast, buy us beers, because we did buy beers. That's true. (laughs) Patreon is a great way to do that. And uh, thank you so much. Cheers to you.